Good morning. That's your fourth good morning of the morning. You're very well warmed up. It's good to see everybody here. And uh, as you're turning, I just want to say I'm well aware that Halloween is over. Yet the mustache remains. Somebody said to me the other day, they said, hey, I know why you're wearing the mustache. It's because you're going to China, right? As if everyone in China wears a mustache, which they don't, especially the girls. They don't. Uh, but somebody else said, uh, I know why you got a mustache. It's because you're from Tennessee. I was like, oh, burn. It's discrimination, right? In fact, I went into the store the other day, and I was going to get some Benton's bacon. You know what Benton's bacon is? It's gourmet bacon. If you go to New York City and eat in the finest restaurants, you will only find Benton's bacon, the pride of Madisonville, Tennessee. The only place you can get it, right? So I wanted some. I went to the store, said, hey, can you give me some Tennessee Benton's bacon? And the guy just chuckled at me. And I said, I've had enough. This discrimination ends here. So I said to the guy, look, man, what if I'd come in here and ask for a uh, Polish, Polish uh, sausage? Would you assume that I'm Polish? I know you're assuming I'm from Tennessee because of this Benton's bacon. What if I ordered French fried? Would you think I was a French fella? No, you wouldn't. Or if I ordered a Brockworth, would you think I'm German? No, you wouldn't. So what gives you the right? How dare you assume I'm from Tennessee just because I ordered Benton's bacon? And he said, well, first off, this is a hardware store. Yeah, yeah. A little confused I was that day. And isn't it confusing during election season, man? Tuesday, we're going to vote. And as I read Christian writings all over the internet, there's some division going on. People don't know who to vote for, both locally and nationally. Locally, we have the tightest governor's race in the country, they say, between Pat McCoy and Roy Cooper. And uh, I also heard that as of today, they spent at least $20 million just on advertising on the governor's race here in North Carolina. And most of that stuff is just negative trash ads, right? You've probably seen them. I saw one last night. Um, Pat McCrory has one out, and the title of it is simply Lie, L-I-E, Lie. And he goes on to say how Roy Cooper's a big liar person. And then Roy Cooper's got one out. It's called Raise Your Hand. And he gathers a bunch of common folk people, and he asks them questions like, "Are you satisfied? Have you been have you been messed over by Pratt McCroy in education?" And all these people are raising their hand, and it's all negative stuff. And you think, why would they spend twenty million dollars on that negative advertising? Well, trust me, if the political machine is spending that much money, it's because it works. People are looking for someone who will keep their promises. And nationally, you know, TCC is not promoting any candidate, or neither am I, but if you just look at the two national candidates for president, we've got Trump, and some Christians are writing, I'm scared of Trump for a lot of reasons, but for one reason they say is, I don't think he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Maybe I hope that he broadens the military, or he makes a Supreme Court justice nominee, or that he lowers taxes. Maybe that's your hope, but in Trump, he says he's going to do that, but you're not sure he's going to actually do it. And then some Christians are writing about Clinton. They're actually scared that she will do what she says, right? In the last debate, she talked with Chris Wallace, and she said, I'm uh, going to support late-term or partial birth abortions. And so a lot of Christians fear she's going to 
do that. So Christians are all scared about this debate, and part of it revolves around we want people to make good on promises, make good on their promises, both do what they say they're going to do and let good come from these promises. What's that have to do with us today? Well, as we gather here as a church, we want you to come and treasure Christ and then go out emboldened to love one another and to love your community. And one of the chief ways the Scriptures would have you be emboldened is to trust that God makes good on His promises. Hebrews 10 says it like this. You might remember in Hebrews 10, uh, the author says, when we come together, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Right? What's the confession of our hope in Hebrews? The confession is Jesus is Lord. He's our treasure. He's big enough. That's the confession of our hope in Hebrews 10. And at the end of the verse, in verse 23, he tells us why we can have security and holding fast to our hope. He says, because he who promised is faithful. We can come together and worship God and hold on to the confession of our hope because he who promised is faithful. Sometimes when I'm with my kids and we study the Scripture, we'll make uh, copies of the Scripture. We'll put them on a copy machine and then copy out one sheet, and then we can write all over and decorate and make marks on the sheet instead of decorating your Bible. And if I were doing that today on the text of Luke 1, 5 through 25, I would just write over the whole text, God makes good. God makes good. That's the message he has for you here from Luke chapter 1. One. As we jump into it, I just want to pray a prayer with you as we jump in it. So let's pray together. I want to pray from Psalm 123 together. Let's pray. To you, O God, I lift up my eyes. We as a congregation, we lift up our eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of a servant would look to the hand of their master, or the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of a mistress, so our eyes look to you as our Lord, our God. And we will look until you have mercy upon us. So have mercy on us this morning, God. Show us yourself in the Scriptures, and have mercy on all of us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Some stories in the Bible are just better... Uh, absorb and they are outlined. And so that's what we're going to try to do today, jump into the story with this frame of reference, God makes good, and try to absorb what God has for us today. So let's jump in, Luke 1, verse 5. The scripture says this, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So here's the setting here. It's about 4 BC, Palestine. We're introduced to a family here. There's a man. He's an elderly man. He's an old man. His name is Zechariah. It's a strong name. It means Yahweh has remembered me again. And he has a wife, also an elderly lady. She has a good name. Elizabeth means I swear by my God. So we see here they're introduced. Here's a priest. He actually married the daughter of a priest just to keep things extra holy. That's the way they did it. And they're aging together. And by all accounts, they are good, godly people. We see that in verse 6 as we read on. 
And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. Things are rosy here. But then you see the turn in verse 7. But, here's their drama, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So this childlessness would be an utter tragedy in the first century, just as it's so hard for those of you going through complications with childbirth today. It was likewise a tragedy in the first century, and they were, they were getting uh, beyond the, path, the, the stage of life where they could ever hope to have a child. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you know the Old Testament context where we see this time and time again, other women in the scriptures who have the same complications, Sarah or the mother of Samson or Hannah all had this dark trial. And we'll get back to that in a minute, but I want to finish the setting here as we see in verse 8. This is Zechariah. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside of the temple at the hour of the incense. So here's what's going on. Zechariah is one of 18,000 or so priests that are in the nation of Israel at this time. So there's a ton of them around, and they work it in shifts. So it's his time to go to the temple and make the sacrifices, and they have a special sacrifice that each priest only does once in a lifetime. The once in a lifetime deal, they draw lots, and once your name is up, you don't ever do it again. And in this moment, when we find Zechariah, it is in his lottery pick moment. He has won, and it's going to be his time to have the greatest honor in the priest's life, to go into the holy place and make a sacrifice to the Lord God Almighty. And one timely thing about this text, you know, we planned this series uh, weeks ago, but one time, time thing about this text is as we see him going into the temple to do his priestly work, the context tells us that he's going to be praying for the hope of his nation. The political and spiritual salvation of his nation is at stake. Just as we, if you have any moral compass at all, you're concerned about our nation, both politically and spiritually and morally, Zechariah, too, had these thoughts on his mind as he goes toward the holy place. And let's make note, his only hope then is our only hope now. In a God who is powerful enough and good enough to keep his promises to his people, a God mighty enough to bring both justice and mercy to his people, here temporarily and then forevermore when he comes again in Jesus Christ. So as we find Zechariah, if you can just imagine this in your mind, here he is, he's gone inside the broader temple complex, which is you know, a large gated area, and then you have the temple formally in itself. And this is the only place in the New Testament where we actually have a scene taking place inside the temple. And so what Zechariah has done is he's gone to outside of the temple, one of the little altars, and he's taken some coals, not with his hands, but he's taken some coals and he's carrying them inside the temple because he's going to use the hot coals to actually light the altar inside. And so you imagine him walking up 12 or so steps. He's an elderly guy. He's moving slow. But even though he's got some cumbersome robes on, some priestly garments, 
He's got a quickening in his step today. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And he reaches the top of the stairs, and there's these huge wooden doors in front of him, and there's pillars of gold all around him, and he leans into those doors, and you can hear it. You know, he, he edges his way in, and as he steps in, the room is almost empty. The ceilings are 60 feet high, kind of cold in there. It has a hollow feeling. The first thing he might see is the big curtain at the back of the room. It goes all the way from the floor to the ceiling. It's maroon and gold in color. And it's right in front of that is his altar that he's got to make. He's got to get to this incense altar. So he creeps forward. On the left, he passes the lampstand used for worship. On the right is the bread of the presence. And finally, he arrives at this curtain. And what he's going to do is he's going to take some incense and he's going to burn it with those coals that he already got from outside. And when this happens, when he burns it, it's going to be this um, splash of aroma that fills the whole holy place of the temple. It's almost like one of those essential oil dispensers. Have you seen those? They just, and your whole kitchen is like, whoa, I got it. That's what's going on here. And it's supposed to represent the prayers of the saints. And outside, why this is going on, surrounding the temple are God's people gathered. And they're all calling out to God, saying, God, fulfill your covenant promises. God, come and do what you said you were going to do. Come, come, God, and make good. Make good on what you said you were going to do. And we know that God will make good. But in the meantime, inside the temple, we see Zechariah with his personal test of faith. The biggest test of faith in his life is about to happen. You see it in verse 11. Again, picture him at the incense. Maybe his hand is trembling as he's lighting this thing. As he lights it, in verse 11, there appears to him an angel of the Lord standing right here, right to the right side of the incense. And Zechariah was troubled, understatement, right? Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. As he walked in there, he's alone. As he lights it, he is not alone. Right here is a divine being, and he cowers away. You could see fear take over his countenance. He's trembling at the presence of the Lord, but thankfully, in verse 13, the angel turns to him, as angels often do, and says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Interesting that he would answer that, right? Because we know at this time, he's not uh, praying about his personal life. He goes in there to pray on behalf of the salvation of the whole nation. And yet God is remembering what appears to be a previous prayer request for a child. God brings that up in this moment. Don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. So here's the first promise of our text today. It's a doozy too. This is not renegotiating NAFTA here, right? Or immigration reform. This is a supernatural, supernatural, undoable thing. It's impossible for them to have children. It cannot be done. Even Zechariah objects here, right? He's got two objections. He says uh, in verse 18, Whoa, how am I going to know this? How am I going to know that I'm having a child? You can see disbelief and confusion come across his face as you're picturing this, right? And he says, uh, you know I'm an old man, right? And my wife is also advanced in years. 
They're not in the stage of life where they're going to have children. Perhaps the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Zechariah knows this. He knows it's going to have to be a mighty miracle here. And he turns and he asks for a sign. When he says, well, how can I know this? That's not what you should say to an angel, right? But he does. He asks for proof here. And look how Gabriel responds. To be clear, this is unbelief in the heart of Zechariah. Verse 19, the, an- the angel answers him and says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And that was meant to put Zechariah in his place, right? Should be enough that I'm in the presence of God and I'm giving you this message. I was sent here and I was going to bring you good news. I was sent to bring you good news. And now, verse 20, behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that all these things take pass, because you did not believe my word. Now mark that, underline it, that's a very important part of the story. You did not believe my words, and they will be fulfilled in their time. You can almost picture Gabriel at this point making a motion like, or and Zechariah, maybe mid-sentence, he's shut up. He can't talk anymore. And later on in the story, verse 62, we actually have a hint that Zechariah probably can't hear anymore either because later in the story, uh, people are having to use sign language to communicate to him. So it seems that he's stricken, mute, and deaf at the same time. For the next nine months, we won't be hearing a peep out of Zechariah due to his own disbelief, his unbelief. No matter how good or righteous a man he was, God still demanded that Zechariah trust in his promise because God makes good on his promise. God makes good on his promise. I heard a joke about keeping your promises. You want to hear it? I'm going to tell it. Here's a joke. So uh, one time, you know who Mick Jagger is? singer for the Rolling Stones. Mick Jagger's son wants to get a loan. So he calls up the First Bank of London and he says, I need a loan. And the loan officer answers the phone. Patricia Wachowski answers. And she said, oh, I promise you I can give you a loan. After all, you're Mick Jagger's son. You you have my word. Come on in here. We'll give you the lowest rates. So an hour later, Patricia's sitting in there and inside the lobby to her dismay walks a frog. A frog walks in. And he walks up to her and he says, hey, I'm Mick Jagger's son, Kermit Jagger. So she's thrown off on the voice on the phone. She didn't know this was a frog. And she says, oh, Kermit Jagger, good to see you. Uh, You want a loan, right? He said, yeah, you promised me a loan. Now I'm here to get it. So her mind's turning. She didn't know this was going to be a frog, right? So she says, "Uh, okay, Mr. Jagger, uh, what do you have for collateral? And so Kermit reaches into his little froggy pockets, as they are, and he pulls out uh, a little trinket. It's like a little marble elephant, a little pink thing that you might stick on your table or your bookcase or something. And he said, this is my collateral. So now she's stuck. She's made this promise, and it's a crazy deal all around. He's a frog, and all he has for collateral is this little trinket. So she says, uh, I'm going to get back to you. I'm going to go, and I'm going to uh, talk to my manager. So Patricia Wilkowski runs to her manager, and she says, Manager, what am I going to do? I promised Kermit Jagger, not knowing he was a frog, that I would give him a loan. 
And she hands the manager the trinket, who looks at it, and as managers are, very wisely studies it. And then he turns back to her and he says these words. It's a knick-knack, paddywhack. Give the frog a loan. <laughs> His old man's a rolling stone. <laughs> That's all right, isn't it? He wanted to keep his promise. He wanted to keep his promise no matter how crazy the circumstance. And that, in a semi-humorous way, is the point of the text. God will keep his promises no matter how laughable the circumstances, as it was for Zechariah and his wife to have a baby. Uh, as we return to the story, thankfully, <laughs> look in verse 21. No more jokes. <clears throat> Verse 21, uh, the people were waiting for Zechariah, okay? So he's had a long time inside the holy place, inside the temple, longer than most. People know how this ritual is supposed to go, but it's not supposed to be this long pause. So they're waiting for him to come out, and they were wondering, verse 21, at his delay inside. In verse 22, when he comes out, he was unable to speak to them, right? And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, that's the angel. And he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he actually went home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when I looked on him to take away my reproach among people. God delivered on his promise God made good. I went out uh, with my kids on Halloween, and you can still see today even lots of these um, people dressed up as yellow things. And when I go by them, my little two-year-old will shout, Minion, 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 Minion. People still dressing up as Minions from the movie Despicable Me, if you've seen it. And when I saw that, I was reminded of this cartoon movie that I've watched before with my children. And if you haven't seen it, here's how the story goes at the main point where uh, the movie's going to tell you what it means. At the climax of the movie, that's where you find out what the picture's all about. At the climax of this movie, there's our hero character, and he's been separated from, by a bad guy from his adopted daughters, right? And he's trying to rescue them, and it's a midair plane-to-plane rescue situation. His daughters have been seized by the bad guy, and he's flying away, so the good guy has a plane, and he's going to catch him, and he stands out on the edge of his plane, and he says, jump down, daughters, to my plane, right? Jump down. He has a preteen daughter named Margot, and she doesn't know if she should trust him or not, and uh, he yells up to her, Margot, I'll catch you, and I'll never let you go again. That's right at the climax, and she has this look on her face, and she's like, oh, yeah, I want to jump. So as she jumps, and as she does it, the evil guy reaches out and grabs her by the scruff of the neck right when she jumps to him, and she trips, and she falls, and she lands on this high wire and balances for a while, and then she falls again. And so you see the hero jumping in after her with the help of the minions, and he grabs her as she's falling out of the plane, and when he grabs her, he says, I've got you, I've got you, I've got you so dramatic. And when I thought about that movie, I thought to myself, it's just like God. God wants the glory of catching you when you fall. And you need the joy of being caught. God wants the glory of catching you when you fall. And you need that utter joy of being caught in his arms. But to do that, you have to trust that God makes good on 
his promises. That's what he wants from Zechariah in our text today, and that's what he wants from me and you. In the 1600s, there was a famous Puritan preacher named Thomas Brooks. He was a serious guy. He didn't preach about minions or frogs, but he did preach about Jesus and his promises. And Thomas Brooks said this in the 1600s. He said, three things are called precious in the scripture. Three things are called precious. The blood of Christ is called precious, 1 Peter 1.19. The faith is called a precious faith, that's 2 Peter 1.1. And the promises of God are called precious promises, 2 Peter 1.4. I read that and I thought, that's right, they are precious. I feel it when I read them. I feel it when I read them individually. I feel them when I read them corporately. In fact, let's just take a moment here. Bathe with me in the spirit-filled rest for a moment and let warm water of Christ's promises improve the circulation of your soul. Let me just read a few of his promises. Remember when Jesus said this, what father among you, if his son asked for a fish, will give him a fish instead of a snake? Or if he asked for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit is promised. Again, he says, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. Hear that promise? And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. He shows you kindness, and you will be the son of the Most High. Later, he said, judge not, you'll not be judged. Condemn not, you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven and give and it'll be given to you good measure pressed down shaken together running over will be put into your lap for with the measure you use it will be measured back to you how about this one jesus said i have said these things to you that in me you may have peace the promise in the world you'll have tribulation you've lived that out right in the world you'll have tribulation but take heart I have overcome the world. That's the promise of your living Savior. Finally, everyone, says Jesus, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. On and on and on and on we have the promises of God in Jesus Christ that are for your joy. More than that, your eternal salvation. I pray that we will take hold of them. Mothers, your only hope with your child's heart is to know that God makes good on the promises of Jesus Christ. Husbands, when you feel like your home or your finances or your whole life is slipping through your fingers, your only hope is that God makes good and precious child of God. When apathy and depression sneak in once again this week, your only hope is that God will make good and deliver your joy through Jesus Christ, through his work on the cross, through his holy life, Jesus will deliver you. I felt that this week. I had a bad morning. One, one morning this week. You may, you may think, preacher's having a bad morning? What's that like? But uh, we have bad mornings. 
awful morning, some more than we would like to say. And I had, I had one this past week, and I you know, got out of bed early in the morning and stood there, and I jumped right back in bed. I don't know if you do this, but there's some kind of defense mechanism where I just got under my covers, and I was like, I'm, I'm not going back. I am, I am down. I was consumed with my own evil, and I tried it again. Got up, and then I was back, back in the bed, had the pillow over my head. All I could say to myself were these words, I hate myself. I hate myself. I hate myself. Self-condemnation was there. I was more like a cavernous pit than an early morning dawn that day, and I needed help. I knew I couldn't help myself, but I knew that Christ had given me a promise. And so I lunged for it. I lunged for it, and I caught it just in time. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Yours will be the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, because you will be comforted. And right at that moment, I grabbed onto the lowest rung of the kingdom of heaven, with the grip of Christ, and he gave me comfort. There was nothing magical about it. It took a while, but God delivered deep, soothing comfort in my soul because he makes good on his promises. God makes good. And so we offer that to you today. There's one other thing here in the text. This text is about personal deliverance for Zechariah and Elizabeth of a child that they were promised, but it's also about much, much more. Look in verse 14 with me. Still the angel talking, still about this son who's going to be born, named John, to Zechariah. Verse 14, the angel says, And you will have, at the baby's birth, joy and gladness. So that's not too profound, if you remember it. All of us who have kids, uh, it's a joyful moment. There's a uh, few greater times of joy in your life than when your kids are born. So it makes sense that he would say, you will have joy and gladness. But he means more than that. And you can tell if you keep reading the sentence. Because he says, and many will rejoice at the birth of your child. Now, he's one priest among 18,000, right? Why are many people going to rejoice at this birth? Well, 15, because he will be great before the Lord. Well, what's that mean? What does it mean for their son John to be great before the Lord? Well, we haven't got there, of course, but this is talking about John the Baptist who will come and do the preparation work for Jesus. Uh, but still, we need to know, why is he so spiritually significant that the angel would say, he is great before the Lord? Let's keep reading. Verse 16. Because he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepare. And so as we look at verses 14 through 17, we really need to see the enormity of what's being promised here. And this is how this works. This text in Luke 1 is, is like this podium here. If the text were the tray of this podium, underneath the text sits this undergirdment, this structure that holds it up. So under Luke 1 is a lot of Old Testament text that actually hold up what the angel is saying, so to speak. Uh, Isaiah, but particularly in Malachi uh, in chapters 2, 3, and 4. So I wanted to, if you can hold on, I want to go back and look at those Malachi passages because 
That's what he's alluding to when he's saying these words, and they're actually informing Luke 1. So, for instance, Malachi 2, verse 6, it refers to how in response to God's covenantal pledge, God says, Levi walked with me, the Lord, in peace. And Levi walked in uprightness, and he was able to turn many from iniquity. Notice that turning language from Malachi that shows back up here in Luke 1. Also, Luke uh, is, is alluding to Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. In that uh, passage, Malachi is speaking of the coming day of the Lord, when God will bring forth both mercy and justice for everyone. He says this, Behold, says in Malachi, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. I'll send Elijah, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. You can hear that echoed in the Luke passage. And note something, there's an Old Testament reference to Elijah that's being applied now to John the Baptist. He is going to be in some way like Elijah. Also note that families are going to be reconciled because of this great turning of hearts that will happen. Finally, in Malachi 3, verses 1 through 4, we read this. God says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. The angel is echoing that. It seems God promises to send a messenger that will be John the Baptist, and he will proclaim to all of the people. But don't, don't miss the next part of Malachi. Listen to what he says. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi speaks of two messengers coming. The first one is his messenger and he prepares the, the way for the messenger of the covenant. This is the Messiah. He is the mediator of the covenant, he is the content of the covenant, and he is coming. And verse 2 in Malachi chapter 3 says this, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap, and will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and will refine them like gold and silver. That's the Messiah. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. What is this prophecy talking about? Why in the world are we reading it? Well, we see in it that God is promising for his people three things. First off, he's promising a great messenger. That is John who will come. And the power of God that was displayed in the ministry of Elijah that has been absent in Israel for years will now be jump-started. He's triggering Elijah, uh, this Elijah-like guy, John the Baptist, is triggering an onslaught of God's work and activity that's going to grab his people by the pants and show off how glorious God is. So there's a time in awakening him. The power of God as displayed in Elijah is going to come through John the Baptist. Secondly, God's people are going to be reformed and restored. God's people, all of the people of faith at the coming of the work of Christ will be reformed and restored. I heard a story from 2012. I don't know if you heard this. Um, I was just reminded of it this week. Uh, there was a town in 2012 in Spain, a town called Borgia. And in Borgia, Spain, there was a church, still is a church, and they had there a 
beautiful fresco of Jesus. You know what a fresco is? I'm not too literate, so I don't know what it is, but I looked it up. Fresco is painted on the brick in watercolors. It's been there for 100 years. This beautiful European painting. I think we got a picture of it. Yes, but you can see it began to fade, and it began to have stains, and so one do-gooder in Borgia, Spain, precious old lady decided that she was going to go and restore it. She was an amateur restorationist, and she had her tools, and she went to it, and she did this to it. The most famous painting in town, she went for it, and she botched it up. <laughs> it looks like crayons now, right? And so obviously she felt horrible, but what was amazing was the reaction of the people and what happened after that, what happened after that was there was this initial backlash of expert restorationists who came in and said, how dare you touch that? And people were shocked. Uh, but then, uh, at this point, four years ago, Spain was in this awful recession. Nobody in town had jobs. But when she made this goof up, people started to flood to the town. Tourists started to flood to the town just to pay money to see her mess up. And people in the town who didn't have jobs began to get tourist job, then this little town that was just starving now begins to flourish. They even have so much money that they start working with a uh, nursing home to care for the elderly in the town. And when I heard that story, I thought, man, what a story reflecting our own need for reformation, right? We're all created in the image of God, right? Yeah, we have our scrapes and our stains, and when we notice them, we're all going to try to make our amateur attempts at self-restoration, right? But because of our unrighteousness and sin, we always end up ruining more than we repair. But I praise God that we're now living in a time where God is going to restore not just our own lives, but he's going to restore the entire village of God's people by the Spirit, based on the work and the death of Jesus Christ. He's got his people. He's preparing us for the coming day of the Lord when we will see his mercy and his justice. And as the prophets say, the son of his righteousness will rise with healing on his wings. All creation will be restored as God reorients the cosmos to worship his glory better and better. Total restoration is coming, and it's announced here. And finally, don't forget, all of this will come through the work of the Messiah. John is seen as big and important here, but Christ is seen as preeminent in the book of Luke and in chapter 1. If we had time to read on, we would read how when John is actually born, Zechariah says this phenomenal prayer and in it, it's amazing, it's as if he takes the baby and he looks through John the Baptist and he sees the glory of God in Jesus, the coming Messiah. The Messiah is the one who is going to make the promises good. God makes good on his promises. And just like in the story in chapter 1, we see a personal deliverance of Zechariah and also a more corporate deliverance of all God's people. just wanted to share a couple things here. Uh, of individual thoughts and response to this text and also corporate response. First, as individuals, as we speak of our great God who comes and restores people, bringing justice, and joy, and regal jurisdiction, let's not forget the other side of the coin. Don't forget 
that yes, Zechariah was shown the mercy of a newborn child when he brought that child to life. He was also disciplined in the story, right? He couldn't speak for nine months. And that's meant to be a picture of the wrath of God on all of those who fail to believe in the Messiah, fail to believe in the promises wrapped up in Jesus Christ our Lord. If we go back to Malachi, I only read the first four verses of the prophet there. If you keep reading about the coming of Christ in verse 5, that's way back in Malachi 3, in verse 5, he says this. God says, Then I will draw near to you. I'll draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the hired workers. I'll be against those who are against the widow, those who oppress the fatherless. I will be against those who thrust aside the sojourners, and I will be against those who do not fear the Lord, says the Lord God of hosts. That's a biblical warning that God, yes, he promises mercy to all of us who trust and turn to Jesus and say, I can't do this on my own. I'm unworthy before you. I claim Christ as my treasure, forsaking everything else. Christ is my treasure. There's mercy for you. There's joy and life everlasting in Jesus. But for those who fail to trust God, and try to restore themselves and take another path outside of Jesus, judgment is coming. Today is the day when you can turn away from yourself and turn to Jesus Christ, accepting Him as the fullness of your joy and your treasure and receive life everlasting. God's not messing around. There is judgment awaiting all who reject Him. Make today the day that you personally individually turn to Jesus Christ. And then corporately here as we gather as God's people, especially in light of the looming election, everybody's concerned with that. I just want to quote uh, a writer named Bruce Ashford who wrote recently. He said, let's remember this Tuesday that our hope, of course, is not found in the 2016 election cycle, right? Our hope is anchored in the promised future kingdom in which, as the prophet Amos says, justice will roll down like waters. For that reason, we can engage in political activity, but we do it with humble confidence. The realm of politics, as dark as it may seem, will one day be resurrected and made to bow in submission to Christ the King. He will renew the earth, but it will be His victory rather than ours. And on this promise, we can trust that God makes good. Let's pray together.